These monsters look just like you, but if you approach them, your friends and family may find that you've gone missing. Welcome back to Unexplained Encounters. I'm your host, Darkness Prevails. If you're new here, this show is all about the unexplained supernatural and unnatural things encountered by everyday people from all over the world. This week's stories are about crawlers, strange pale humanoids that crawl and lurk in the wild or abandoned places, as well as doppelgangers, mysterious entities that look exactly like people you know, or even yourself. If you want to hear your story told on Unexplained Encounters, share it with us at eeriecast.com forum. Also, we're planning something called The Creepy Club for listeners who are fans of this show and other shows on the EerieCast network. The idea is you'd get ad-free episodes of all your favorite EerieCast shows, exclusive content only for members, and you'd get an annual Creepy Club t-shirt with an exclusive design by a talented artist, all for $49.99 a year, basically just a little over four bucks a month. So if this is something that interests you, please head on over to EerieCast.com slash creepyclub and sign up for the waiting list. This helps us get an idea of how many people are interested. Thank you. Oh, and be sure to follow me on Twitter, at Dark Prevails. Now, let's begin. The White Thing on the Golf Course From Sean E. When I was a kid, my dad worked as a golf course superintendent in a small town in southern Illinois. This was in the early 90s, and the golf course's sprinkler system was not computerized, like most systems are today. So on warm nights when the grass needed extra water, my dad would have to go back to work, drive his golf cart out on the dark golf course, and manually turn every sprinkler on himself. I always begged to go with him. One mid-September night after supper, he finally said yes. The night was warm, as we roared out of the maintenance shop, into the darkness, and down the old gravel cart path. The golf cart had no headlights, so my dad had to steer based on his memory, and the little we could see from the sliver of moon left in the sky. This was a small town golf course, and located a bit of a ways outside of town. So instead of being surrounded by houses like most golf courses are today, it was bordered only by cornfields on one side, and a forest on the other. My dad told me he would often hear coyotes yipping and howling at night, and that they would sometimes follow his golf cart in a large, silent pack, eyes glowing gold in the small flashlight beam. Knowing this, I was a bit scared when we stopped at the first sprinkler control box. He left me in the cart to go turn it on. I huddled close to my seat back and looked all around me, trying to see any coyotes that might be stalking us. Sitting there in the dark, I suddenly remembered my dad telling me the story of finding a man who had ended himself in the bathroom on the ninth hole. He'd found the man lying there on the cement floor in a pool of blood, his handgun lying by his side. The ninth hole wasn't that far away from where we were parked, and suddenly I was more afraid of ghosts than coyotes. It was after the third sprinkler when they all started howling at once, so loud that it sounded like they were right in front of us. We were bouncing down a steep, uneven curve in the gravel path next to the deep woods 
and my dad actually stopped the cart to listen to them. He sat quietly as the coyotes howled, and I begged him to turn around and go back. He told me to be quiet and wait. I squinted into the darkness, trying to see their dark forms. My dad turned on his flashlight and scanned the tall prairie grass next to the woods with its beam. But no coyotes were visible. Suddenly, a loud crashing sound echoed in the brush to our right, somewhere inside the woods. I grabbed my dad's arm and he shrugged me off. He told me not to worry, that what we heard was just a deer that the coyotes must have been hunting. He told me jokingly that coyotes like the taste of deer way more than the taste of little kids, but I wasn't fooled. I could see the fear in his eyes. There was an old abandoned silo at the edge of the woods directly ahead of us. My dad used to jokingly call it Dracula's Castle when he would take me and my other siblings out for daytime drives around the golf course. I remember thinking it was so funny, especially when he would let us throw rocks at it and try to get them to go through the grain-loading window at the top of the structure. They would hit with a loud crack and bounce off the silo every time. Then my dad would do Dracula's voice, shouting, Stop waking me up, you naughty children! And we would all laugh. Now, coming to the turn where the silo would appear, I wasn't laughing at all. I was scared of that large cement structure, dark and empty in the night air that was getting colder by the minute. My dad stopped the cart on the path and got out to walk to the next control box. I asked him if I could keep the flashlight, but he told me he needed it to see the sprinkler controls. He did say I could come with him though, but I refused. I was not getting out of that cart, not when coyotes and ghosts were around. As my dad walked into the darkness, I turned to look at the old silo, the single black eye of its grain-loading window staring back at me in the faint moonlight. I thought about what it would be like to live in a silo like that, its caved-in roof open to the wind and rain. Suddenly, a pale face appeared in the window. It was far away, so I couldn't see much detail, but it was bald and had bright white skin, white like Elmer's glue white. It had two black pinprick eyes, a nose that looked more like a black hole, and a gaping wide mouth, as if it was permanently, silently screaming. I couldn't move or speak as it looked directly at me from the top of the silo. I wanted to call out to my dad to try to drive the cart over to him and get both of us out of there, but all I could do was watch as it scrambled out of the hole like some lizard snake skeleton thing, slick and bony and terrifyingly flexible. It slid more than climbed down the remaining rungs of the silo's ladder and landed in the brush below, standing bent and hunched and still, staring at me. It had long, bony arms and legs that seemed all jumbled and with too many joints. Its eyes were so black that I wanted to scream. Suddenly, I heard a scream escape my lips, but it wasn't mine. It was the pack of coyotes howling in unison, a screaming sort of howl I'd never heard before that sounded like a mixture of rage and fear. In a moment, the white thing was gone darting away in a flash of white and crashing into the brush behind the silo 
and into the woods beyond. My dad ran over to the cart, jumped in, and took the fastest route back to the maintenance shop, passing the old bathroom on hole nine so close that I could see what I thought were bloodstains on the concrete next to the men's room door. I never asked my dad what he heard or saw that night. Was he simply afraid of the change in the voices of the coyotes? Or had he seen the impossible white thing too? I do know that he was as afraid as I was, leaving the rest of these sprinklers unset and not even locking up the shop when we got back, abandoning the cart outside and jumping into his work truck to speed us home. I never went back to that course at night, and my dad always seemed apprehensive whenever he had to go set the sprinklers at night again. I know he started taking a pellet gun with him too, and a much larger, more powerful flashlight. What was the thing I saw? Did my fevered childhood imagination conjure it up? Was it somehow related to the most likely dead owners of that abandoned silo, or the coyotes, or the man who ended himself in the bathroom on the ninth hole? I'll never know, and I'll never go back there. My dad got a job in northern Illinois a couple years later, and we moved, never to return to that wilder, darker part of the state. The Summer of 2016 From Mischievous Raccoon This story takes place in a Native American reservation in the summer of 2016. For a little background, it happened at my grandmother's land, in which she's surrounded in the mountains by forest. It takes about 30 minutes of traveling in the mountains of twists and turns to get to her house. The last 10 minutes is just driving down a road with forest on each side, and no light, since the moon would be covered by thick trees. We always had a set of rules, but we all obeyed her without needing rules. We could never go outside by ourselves, we were never allowed outside after sundown. We were not to look outside after the curtains came down. After all the paranormal stuff that happened there, I always made sure to follow these rules, and sometimes lay in the hallway that had no windows. I loved visiting my grandma's because I'd never really got to see her, except every few years, and I actually got to stay with her during the summer. After that summer, I never saw the world the same and I began to believe all the scary stories told to me might be true. That summer, it was my cousin Carlos, who was the oldest of all of us, my sister Judith, who was the second oldest, and lastly the trio, each of us a year apart, being my two cousins Felix and Brett, and me, the youngest. One night we were coming back from town, which was two hours away. My grandma was driving since we picked up Carlos from a party, he was in the passenger seat. My two cousins and I were in the back. As we traveled, it was a dark night, and Carlos kept insisting on going to his friend's house while he offered to get a ride home or would simply walk back. My grandma told him no in our native language and started to lecture him like she would to any of us. You know the stuff out there, so why put yourself in the situation of seeing something? She sighed while she parked and told us to get inside. I was the most scared of all of us, and after the things I've seen and experienced, I just never looked around and never understood why it never bothered anyone else. 
I always shut my eyes and counted the steps until I reached her porch, and I finally opened them just to take the three steps up and open the door. Sometimes my cousins would help me, knowing that I would just shut my eyes during the night. Finally coming home to the wood crackling, the faint smell of cedar burning, and the warmth engulfing me like it was giving me a hug, this was my safe space, being inside and having my grandma next to me, it always made me think nothing bad could happen. As all of us traveled inside one by one, Judith came out of the back room of the trailer. She didn't want to come with us to get our cousin, so she offered to stay home and keep the fire going. My sister was the complete opposite of me. While I was the scared one, she was always leading us on some adventure, and never showed she was scared. My grandma favored her a bit more because she was more fearless. As my grandma says, they can sense your fear, so you never should have fear. Act brave. Indicating all of the bad things that lurked in the woods. We all ate and cleaned up while my grandma decided to go to sleep and told us to behave ourselves. As we sat there, debating what to do, we began telling stories about stuff that happened at my grandma's house. Stories that happened during the broad daylight versus something that happened during the night. Suddenly, Carlos comes into the room and stops once he realized my grandma was asleep, and he smirked. My friend Danny called me, said he was outside since he couldn't drive, and I didn't get dropped off, so he just walked over. We began to protest, but he quieted us all. Carlos, are you coming? A voice shouted outside of the trailer, and chills just ran down my body for seemingly no reason. He opened the door and walked out. We all began to wonder if we should follow them, since Carlos was still a bit drunk, and the woods always made us get lost sometimes. Brett and Felix offered to follow their brother, while my sister told me to go with them. What? Why me? I was baffled, and my heart began to race. You know where they go, because you always go with them, and someone has to watch the house, she pointed out. As she pushed my shoes close to me with her feet and gave me a jacket, my heart began to race. Brett and Felix took a flashlight, opening the door. I looked out into the dark. The little light bounced around as if it was dancing, showing where my older cousin was running off to. He was heading straight to the mountain that was shared with my grandma's neighbors, a simple barbed wire fence showing the property line. His friend was the neighbor's son that lived on the mountain. As we began walking, I shut my eyes, grabbing my cousin's sleeve as I started shaking. I didn't know if it was because it was cold, or the fact my heart felt as if it was about to explode out of my chest. Are you okay? Felix asked as they stopped walking. I just shook my head, and they sighed. You'll be fine. You have us two here, and we have the rifle. They pointed out, as I opened my eyes to see them on either side of me, holding out the rifle. We began walking again while they stood next to me, so I began to walk as my eyes stayed open. I looked around constantly, as if I was waiting for something to pop out and attack us. They began to talk about how much trouble their brother would be in, but they also feared that he would get hurt. As we began talking up the slope of the mountain, we began to hear the others laughing and joking around, which meant they were close, and I was happy since the sooner we got them, the sooner we could go home. Come on, Carlos, we need to get you back. You know grandma hates us out here at night. 
Brett shouted as he helped me climb up the rocks as we began our slow journey up the mountain. The guys love to hang out on the top because there's a small cave that went back a few feet, but not too far. They'd sit up there and talk or sometimes occasionally shoot their paintball guns to see who had better aim. Just follow us up here. We want to see how the stars look and how much the light lights up the valley. Then we'll go back to the house. Carlos shouted as he and his friend waved their flashlights back and forth. The three of us sighed as we followed them, wondering how much longer it would be. It was already 11 at night with the wind slightly picking up. The wind rustled the leaves around, making it seem like there was someone walking through the trees next to us. I figured it was my anxious self making up things to try and scare me more. Brett and Felix began to jog towards their brother while I tried to keep pace, but soon I fell back a bit and I began to walk. Tears started to fill my eyes as I was left in the dark walking fast. I could feel myself coughing knowing I started to flare up. Just then, I heard rustling in the trees, but I closed my eyes as my heart started racing. The same words my grandma tells us flooded my thoughts, and I opened my eyes and looked to my left. Just then, I saw something pale run back into the woods. Guys? I screamed as I began running, feeling my chest heat up. My face felt like it was burning. Tears made my vision go blurry before I knew it. I finally caught up with them, shaking and out of breath. I looked up to them and saw concern written all over their faces. Are you okay? What happened? Carlos asked as he sat me down on the ground. He made me put my head between my legs, as they would do if I forgot my inhaler and needed help breathing. I saw something running into the woods when I was left behind. It was on all fours running back into the woods. I coughed out taking deep breaths, shaking. I knew they would believe me, considering what we've seen before in our lives. Did you guys see it too, or were you too busy leaving her? Asked Carlos while lecturing his younger brothers, who in return argued that they thought I was behind them. The fact they were not running but jogging, they thought I could keep up. They never really hung out with me but more my sister, so Carlos would keep an eye on me and always had my second inhaler on him in case I forgot mine or couldn't get to mine. I remember the moon shining over everything, giving it a glow, making me feel at peace for a strange reason. I turned to my right, and I could see the trailer in the distance with the lights on and the floodlights in the back on as well. Smoke trickled out, making me wish I was back, rather than on the mountain, dealing with some unknown creature. I kept thinking Skinwalker, as they are known around here. I never saw one myself, but I'd always heard stories about them and the dangers of talking about them, so I quickly got them out of my head, trying to think of what the creature could be besides that. At least you guys brought the rifle, Carlos stated as I turned around. He was holding it and looking at it. But uh, we forgot to bring more bullets, Felix chimed in and chuckled slightly. Well, if we make it to my house, we can get one of the guns and more bullets. Danny spoke while looking behind me. I guess he was trying to look for the creature or could be thinking of how far his house would be. We just need to get out of here. Danny can carry her and I'll follow everyone with the gun. We'll have to run when we're off the mountain since it's a straight path. Carlos began helping me onto Danny's back 
and I noticed the wind had stopped, but there were still leaves rustling next to us. I shut my eyes so that I couldn't look around. Uh, what is that? Felix asked as I felt Danny suddenly stop and my heart began to race even more. We all knew we shouldn't deal with things that live in the dark, but we messed up and now I felt like we were going to die. Is that a... Brett trailed off. Everything stayed silent as Danny readjusted his grip on me. I don't know. It looks human, though, Carlos stated. Why does it look like that? Felix said. Just as I was about to open my eyes to look at what they were looking at, a single shot rang out. My ears rang too. I smelled smoke from the gun. I felt Danny begin to run, and I gripped onto his back as hard as I could. I opened my eyes to see Carlos running behind us. And then I saw it in the tree line. It was on all fours, the moon making its skin look like a glowing gray. We made it back to the house, and we woke up our grandma, who scolded us and started calling her brother, who was a medicine man, who would do a ceremony for us over the phone. I began to cry. I'd never felt so powerless. I'd never felt such an awful feeling thinking I was going to die. My grandma rubbed ash on our heads and told everyone to stay inside until morning when we'd take Danny home. I always wanted to ask my grandma what the creature was, but she always told us to never question it or speak of these events again, that we were simply guests because it's their land and we're living on it. I never want to see that gray, humanoid, crawling thing again, and ever since that summer, I haven't gone back to visit. This episode is sponsored by The Dead Files from Travel Channel. If you're listening to anything on the EerieCast network, odds are you love ghost stories. That's why I think you'll love The Dead Files from Travel Channel. Join hosts Amy Allen and Steve Deshavi as they investigate paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the US. Each host offers a unique and exciting perspective for every case. Amy is a medium, seeing and speaking to those who are no longer in the world of the living. And Steve is a retired homicide detective who uses public records and witness testimony to piece together the history of the haunted location. Each episode of The Dead Files features a different, real haunting to possibly help the family struggling with its effects. One episode on Falconer, New York deals with a family who keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They frequently witness a shadow figure lurking around their home. Amy and Steve receive their call and investigate, with Amy using her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry while Steve, separately, researches the history of the home, only to discover several previous residents who lived at the home died, confirming Amy's own findings. After their investigation, Amy and Steve must conclude with whether the house is safe to remain in, or if it's time to get out. I really love the deferring perspectives and skill sets between the two hosts, and I think that's why The Dead Files is a must-listen podcast for any fan of the paranormal and supernatural. Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. They live in Tucson. From Bose, Koala. Back when I was in high school, 
My girlfriend, Anne, and I used to live really close to each other, about a five-minute drive away, less if we sped. I don't feel comfortable giving too many details, but we were up to what all teens are up to when they hang out on the weekend and are cuddling under a blanket, watching a movie. We were in love and barely took our attention off of each other. That night wasn't any different up until that point. I want to say we were watching Pirates of the Caribbean, but honestly, I don't remember. That's just one of her favorite movie franchises, so I feel safe assuming we were watching it. I remember snogging, laughing, and cuddling as the night went on, until it was about my curfew, that being midnight. She was glued to my chest, begging me to pretend to have fallen asleep, in hopes of her parents letting us sleep on the couch together, when her family dog began to go nuts. Buffy, her dog, was a small thing, the kind of dog my grandpa would say is more rat than hound, but a good guard dog nonetheless. Buffy was yipping around the back glass door and snarling every so often. I stood up and walked over to the door to let her in when I caught movement from the back of their yard. For context, they have a garden running from the side to the back of their yard, so it was basically covered in greenery back there. But on this windless night, the leaves shook violently a couple of times, when I slid the door open. I ushered in the dog and slid the door shut, locking it and pulling the blinds closed. I crouched down to pet Buffy and tell her she was a good girl. Suddenly, Anne said, Hey, Bo, unlock the door. My sister's still outside. What? Uh, no, she's not, I replied. I just saw her go to the tool shed, Anne retorted. When I was younger, I was a lot more stubborn and honestly kind of a jerk. So I pulled Anne to her feet and asked her to follow me out. With my phone flashlight on, we walked over to her family's shed, just so I could prove she was wrong. No one was there, just that creepy shed sitting alone in the alleyway between her parents' house and their neighbors. We walked back inside with Anne a bit upset at me, while I gloated at my victory. I kissed her on the forehead and told her it was time I go home, before I got grounded for getting back too late. Like always, she protested more, saying, Your dad never even enforces your curfew. Just stay a bit longer, please, lovey. But I insisted that I needed to be home on time. I slid my shoes on and started for the front door. Our hands interlocked, like the high school sweethearts we were, and still are. From her door, she walked me to my car, where we talked for a bit, before saying our goodbyes. I started my engine once I saw she was inside, and at around the same time... I saw someone run past my headlights into the darkness. I shrugged it off as her neighborhood was filled to the brim with active walkers and joggers. Morning, noon, and night, someone was always going up and down those sidewalks. My phone rang, Anne being the one on the other end wanting to talk while I drove home, like we almost always did. It was dumb talking on the phone while driving, but we were kids, so we were invincible, obviously. So every time I drove home from her house, It'd be on the phone with her. I drove through her neighborhood and to the main road, both of us telling each other how much we loved each other the whole time. Until I got to the stop sign, a couple of cars passed and I waited my turn to make a left-hand turn when I saw two strange human-like creatures crawling on the house across the road. I remember I exclaimed a few curses, which Anne was confused by. You okay? You didn't crash, did you? N no, uh, nothing like that. There's these weird things, climbing on the roofs of some houses. What do you mean? Like burglars? 
she asked. I don't think so. They weren't wearing clothes, and they're extremely pale. Weird. You gonna call the cops? Yeah, just give me a sec, I replied before hanging up, taking a moment to take everything in before calling. I called in an anonymous tip to the police and finally pulled out of the neighborhood, but instead of heading home, I drove across the street into the neighborhood those things were in. They were crawling and hopping across buildings like no one's business, tripping motion detector lights and causing people to leave their homes to check out the commotion. I followed them for a bit before finding myself in a Culver's parking lot by the wash. I looked around, but I lost them after I pulled in, having to drive around a couple of buildings before reaching where they crawled to. I wanted to get out, but I was afraid to. My phone buzzed, startling me. It was Anne asking if I got home okay. When I told her what I was up to, she scolded me, telling me to stop playing vigilante and to go home. I agreed, not telling her I didn't think these were burglars, and began my journey home. The whole way back home, I felt as if someone was watching me, but nothing happened. I pulled into the driveway, shakily walking to my front door. This is the part where I feel like saying a crawler was waiting for me at my door would fit, but that's not what happened. Not that night. Instead, nothing was there. A week passed and I mostly forgot about the whole incident, especially because I was usually freaked out when I got home late. So I assumed I was just paranoid as always, especially since I'm to this very day afraid of the dark. That assumption of paranoia continued until I ended up back in the same parking lot later that week to grab a bite to eat after staying late at a friend's house. I bought a few burgers and began to eat while sitting on the hood of my car listening to the radio with the passenger door open. I was looking out at the wash when those same things crawled out of it and began lurking towards the neighborhoods again. I froze, just watching and taking in details. They were a light gray and nearly completely hairless, except for the strange line of what honestly looked like fur down the middle of their backs. They easily towered over me. I was six foot four, and these things were near the shingles of the houses they were climbing up. They looked thin, besides their stomachs, which bulged out, giving the illusion they were pregnant. Gods, I hope they weren't pregnant. I watched the three things run across the road and climb onto the roofs of buildings, and begin climbing in the direction of the more residential part of town. At some point, I had hopped off my car and left my food on the hood. I walked to the sidewalk to watch from a safe distance. When I finally came back to my senses, I realized where I was and turned back around. I was bathed in the glow of the Culver's sign as its neon hum drilled into my head, the only sound I heard at the time. I looked over at my car and wondered when the radio had turned off and how. And, to my horror, two more of those things were at my car, one at my hood, devouring my cheeseburgers, the other in my car digging around the front seats. I froze and watched as the things ate my food and ruined my car. My heart raced, but I didn't know what to do. I looked over to the restaurant but the employees had been closing up when I bought my food, and by now they'd already left. It was just me and my car in the parking lot. I thought about running across the street, but I knew there were more of them there. I felt as if I was stuck between two horrible options in a horror film, 
My vision blurred, and I felt sick to my stomach, just watching those things eat. I don't know why, but I took a step forward and began to walk to my car. I didn't feel in complete control of my body, but I was able to steer it. I got myself over to the restaurant itself, and now had a building between me and them. I leaned out and peeked over at my car for close to 20 minutes, watching those things scurry around my vehicle until they finally made their way across the street. That was when I really took notice of how they walked. If you've seen Harry Potter 3, it's similar to how the werewolf in that walked on all fours. Once I felt it was safe, I ran to my car, hopping into the passenger seat and slamming the door shut. I crawled over the console and took off the e-brake and sped out of there. My car was nearly out of gas before the wait, and now it was running on fumes. I ran three red lights to get to my trailer park in record time. My car sputtered out before I made it home, but I felt safe having passed the sign into my neighborhood. I pushed the car into my driveway, cursing up a storm, as I wore myself out physically, after seeing those things already took a mental toll. I pulled the brake back up and locked my car and went to head inside after I'd finally pushed it back into my parking space. I stepped through the stones in my front yard, quietly as to not wake my dad's dogs, and to the side yard my front door was located. I looked across the patio, and there on the wall separating my dad's yard and our back neighbor's yard was one of those things. Its back was turned to me, and a strange mass was held in its right hand. Quietly, I walked the rest of the way to my dad's door, and I was extra careful on the creaky steps. Despite a loud creak, the thing never turned away from its meal. I closed and locked the door, falling asleep in the living room that night. My bedroom was technically closer to that thing, so I refused to go into it. The next day, my dad found a dead cat in our yard and had the sad job of informing our family friend that lived nearby that their cat had been killed by a mountain lion. I haven't seen them since. I actually didn't live there much longer only another half year before I moved out, and now I no longer live on that side of town. But, to this day, I know they're still out there, in the heart of Tucson, living in the washes and storm drains, and they're the reason so many animals ended up on missing pet flyers. They're the reason I don't walk around town at night, and why I refuse to let my pets even go outside at night. Because I know that once the sun goes down in Tucson, those things crawl out of their holes and hunt our pets. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com DPP. Life is tough on all of us. It can already be so difficult to avoid or power through those things that stress you out or drain you. Personally, I find myself unable to enjoy the things I used to like, and I struggle to stay motivated. Luckily, finding help doesn't have to be hard, because there is BetterHelp Online Therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours, unload the stressors, and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. 
see if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Darkness Prevails listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com dpp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash D-P-P. Thank you, BetterHelp. I Saw My Exact Double from Kyle C. When I was 15 years old, I'm pretty sure I met my doppelganger. Yeah, it sounds crazy. Believe me if you want, but I'm just here to tell my story. I live in rural California, a couple miles outside of Crescent City, so not on the coast. All around Crescent City, you see these giant redwood trees, the tallest trees in the world, and there are open acres of land. This happened three years ago, and since then I've moved out of the state, halfway across the country. I lived in a small house with my parents, and there were other houses scattered around the block. There was a small forest pretty much right behind my house, and I often take walks through it, but just not at night. Not because I'm scared of anything attacking me, but just because you can get lost easily, even though it's not the biggest forest. Anyway, my encounter took place at about 8pm one Saturday night. I was on the back porch, just playing on my phone. I wasn't going to bed anytime soon, so I just decided to get a flashlight and take a small walk in the woods. My mom said it'd be okay, but told me not to go too far off and to not get lost. I put on my shoes and set off. I knew the trail well, so I just followed it a little bit and decided to sit under a tall redwood tree to text my friend for a while. I'd been talking back and forth with my friend when I heard a soft thump. I ignored this at first, thinking it was a small nighttime animal. When it happened again, I stood up and looked around. It was eerily quiet, and the only thing I heard was the light breeze rustling the leaves and bushes. I could no longer hear the insects, which was weird, because at night they could be heard for miles. Uncomfortable, I began walking back to my house. I had taken a few steps when I heard something that made me stop. Soft footsteps were slowly coming my way, and I could tell they were behind me. I started to walk faster when I heard a voice. Kyle. There was something familiar about the voice, and since it had said only one word, I couldn't pick it up. But then it spoke again. Kyle. Turn around. I froze in shock, in horror, because the voice was my voice, exactly my voice. It spoke again. Kyle, look at me. Turn around. I turned around, and what I saw about ten feet from me made me drop my flashlight. I saw myself. My exact body, the clothes I was wearing at that moment, my brown hair, my face, my freckles, my exact smile with the same braces I had in my mouth at the time. It seemed exactly my height too, my same hazel eyes. I was too afraid to move, but when I saw the thing sprint at me at an unnatural speed, 
I booked it back down the trail. I turned once, seeing the thing chasing me, not too far behind. It ran awkwardly, with its legs dangling at odd angles, a terrifying smile on its face. I soon saw the tree line of my house, and when I raced up the front steps, the chasing stopped, but it stood perfectly still, now watching me with a serious and somewhat angry expression on its face. It was truly my exact double. I turned away but for a moment, and when I looked back again, it was gone. I didn't see that thing the rest of the three months I lived at that house, and I never did tell my parents. I avoided the woods and was greatly relieved when we moved away. Beware the forests of Crescent City. There are things there you cannot explain. People on death row can have doppelgangers too. From Anonymous. I'll begin by saying this is not my story. It was a story told to me by my cousin and my aunt. It's about a very traumatic experience she had when she was in her early 20s working at McDonald's. It's the reason that to this day she despises everything about McDonald's. The subject was brought up one night when my aunt, my cousin, and I were sitting around having a few drinks, watching TV and playing cards. We really hadn't been paying much attention to the TV until this show about women on death row came on and my cousin caught the title, making some stupid joke about how in a few years they'd probably be watching me on a show like this because of my bad temper. After that, we all focused on the TV as the first story came on. The story was about this woman named Linda Lion Block. I remembered that name because it sucked as much as mine. They showed the image of a woman on screen, and immediately, my aunt's eyes grew wide. I heard her say something like, Oh my god, that looks exactly like her. My cousin and I looked at each other confused. My cousin asked, Like who, mom? My aunt was kind of hesitant at first. She then asked us if we cared to know why she hated McDonald's as much as she did. More curious now than ever, my cousin and I both without hesitation said yes. The story went like this. In 1992, when my aunt was 21, she and my uncle were newly married and with a new baby, and they lived in a little crappy apartment, desperately trying to save to put a down payment on a trailer they were interested in. My uncle worked construction and made great money, but it just wasn't enough, so my aunt took an evening job at McDonald's to help with the bills and save for their new home. Those of us who've worked fast food know it's not always easy work. It can be very demanding, frustrating, and some days downright torment. Despite the stress, my aunt stuck with it and had gotten used to her routine and regular customers. On a night like any other, my aunt was stationed at the front counter. This woman and what appeared to be her two elementary school-aged grandchildren came in and walked to the counter to order. My aunt said the woman looked very out of place in a McDonald's. Everything about her screamed money. She wore a very expensive white pantsuit. Keep in mind this was 1992. Her hair and makeup were flawless, and she had on more jewelry that most people would wear to a big event. Despite her snobby look, the woman was very polite. 
My aunt took her order, then watched her kids sprint for the play place. After their food was out, it was time for my aunt's break. She went outside to have a quick smoke before she decided what to eat for dinner herself. Before she could think very far into her greasy dinner plans, she was interrupted by the sounds of a man and woman screaming at each other, and it sounded close. My aunt peeked around the building to see if she could find the battling couple. She was surprised when she found them. It was the fancy lady leaned up against her brand new Cadillac DeVille, which was also white, and some plain Jane-looking guy about her age. My aunt couldn't turn away. She inched closer, pretending to pick up garbage to get a better view. As she got closer, she could hear what they were arguing about and could pretty much piece together their story from what they were saying. Mrs. Fancy wanted to finalize their divorce so she could remarry, and Mr. Not-So-Fancy wanted nothing of the sort. My aunt was entertained. She continued watching them scream at each other, and that's when things went way, way south. Mr. Plain Jane began to pace and got very frantic. Then my aunt heard him say something like, I'm serious, Margaret. This is your last chance to take me back. Mrs. Fancy, without hesitation, said, Absolutely not, explaining that she did not love him anymore, that it was time for them to move on. He started to pace back and forth again, then started reaching into his jacket. Mrs. Fancy told him to just leave. He then stopped pacing, staring at her like he was in disbelief. Then he pulled out a gun, shooting her three times. My aunt says she will never forget the sound of that woman's screams after she was shot. It was like you could hear every ounce of pain and shock and betrayal she felt. Mr. Plain Jane ran off. Right after he did this, my aunt was in shock, shaking, almost hyperventilating. She went over to the woman who had fallen back, sliding down the side of her brand new Cadillac, smearing blood on her way down. The woman's white pantsuit was no longer completely white. It looked like someone had tried to dye it red, but gave up halfway through. Even the woman's pearl-colored shoes were splattered with her blood. My aunt's manager had heard the gunshots and came outside. My aunt told him to call 911 and to lock the store doors. My aunt was trying to comfort the woman, who had finally stopped screaming, but was becoming less and less responsive by the minute. The woman asked my aunt not to let her grandkids come outside. My aunt assured her that they were in the store behind locked doors. The woman kept asking if an ambulance was coming, saying how much she hurt. She grabbed my aunt's hand and asked if my aunt would pray with her, and my aunt agreed. The woman lost consciousness halfway through the prayer. My aunt finished the prayer, and as she was doing so, she could hear sirens. When the ambulance and police finally came, the woman was dead. Still, the paramedics began to work on her right away and loaded her into the ambulance. My aunt, in shock, covered in another woman's blood, was the first to be questioned by the police. She told them everything she saw and heard. The woman's grandchildren were turned over to the police, and the restaurant closed early that night. It was closed for a few days after that. My aunt was given a week off, paid, to get her mind right. 
She went back for two days after that and just quit. As for her mind going back to where it was, it felt to her like that may never happen. Mainly because my aunt found out on the news that that woman had officially died. One of the shots had clipped an artery and the woman had bled to death. The next day in the paper, there was a giant article on the shooting and the woman who died. My aunt learned from the article that this woman, who you could have sworn was born into money, was actually born dirt poor and had worked in a factory for 38 years. She just enjoyed buying herself expensive things, taking pricey vacations, living the good life after working hard for so long. It also said she was finally moving on from a terrible marriage and that she'd asked her soon-to-be ex to meet her at McDonald's so they could talk about finalizing their divorce. Her fiancé offered to come with her in case her husband tried anything, but she told him that nothing crazy would happen because they were meeting in public. The whole story was just sad. Nowadays, when my aunt sees a McDonald's, it really messes with her, reminding her of the day someone literally died in her arms. Apparently, this woman looked exactly like Linda Lyon Block, the woman whose face appeared on that show about women on death row. My friend from Anonymous. I'm a 14-year-old boy who lives in Croydon, England. This event happened not that long ago, and this is something I just had to share. I was at the local shopping center, running some errands for my mom as I do. Eventually, I was getting hungry, so I went to the chicken place to buy some wings when it happened. I heard a voice behind me calling my name. I look over and see my friend, Sean. I was a little shocked to see him since he lived in another part of town, which was quite far away from where I lived, but we still attended the same secondary school. I waved over and we had a little chat until my order was ready. I'm pretty sure it was him. He was wearing those glasses he wears and he had his yellow bike he always took riding. I walked all the way home and went onto Snapchat to send my streaks. I go into my messages and ask Sean what he was doing at the chicken place in the first place. But then he replied, Uh, I wasn't at the chicken place. What? Yeah, you were. I definitely saw you. Talked to you. Nope. Couldn't be me. Then Sean sent me a picture of him at his cousin's house. I've been at my cousin's all day. Immediately, my head went to Doppelganger. I'm a frequent reader into the paranormal. I told Sean about it. Sean told me not to freak him out, as he was going to the fair the next day, and now he was scared. I told Sean maybe he should just stay home, and he agreed. Then on Monday, I woke up and walked downstairs. My mom was watching the news. On the news flashed a breaking report about some crazy guy who started to shoot at the fair. Apparently, four people had died, six more injured. I don't know what would have happened if I never told Sean about it. What if he'd actually gone to the fair? Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. 
Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only, not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. My Best Friend's Multiganger From Anonymous I am a pagan. This may seem like an unimportant detail, but I'm saying this so you know that I'm not anywhere near a skeptic, and I do believe this is paranormal. Now, to fully grasp the weirdness of this event, I'll have to describe my school and my friend's daily wardrobe. My junior high setup is basically two giant squares, an A building and a B building, with the A building being for academics and B containing gyms, locker rooms, and health classrooms. In the A building, there are four hallways surrounding an outdoor courtyard for lunch in the fall and spring. Each corner of the school has a stairwell that goes up to the other three floors. From one stairwell to another is about 300 feet, so it takes a bit of walking to get from one to another. My friend, who we'll call Maddie, is one of those girls that wears name-brand hoodies and leggings every day. She also wears her hair in a plethora of different styles, but almost always with an athletic headband on. To begin, I was walking from the B building to put my gym uniform in my locker before heading to lunch. I was about halfway to the stairwell when I saw Maddie walking down the hall in the opposite direction. I noticed she was wearing a bright pink Nike hoodie She wasn't wearing a headband, and her blonde hair hung loosely over her shoulders. We made eye contact, smiled, and continued on without stopping or speaking. Our interaction was quite mundane at first, and I didn't think that much of it. But obviously I wouldn't be here if that's all that happened. A few minutes later, I'd reached the stairs and was now ascending them. I'd gotten about two flights up when I noticed Maddie. Another Maddie. She was going down the stairs while having a conversation with our friend Pam. Now, Maddie was wearing her hair in two French braids and had a black headband on. She had on a hoodie for the local college team, which I was accustomed to seeing her wear over the years. My mind could barely understand what was going on. I didn't even process what I'd seen until we'd already passed each other, and I was starting to go up the next flight. There was no way Maddie could have gone from walking away from the stairs to walking down them in a matter of minutes. For that to happen, she would have had to sprint down the hall, go up another flight of stairs, then sprint back across the school and down the stairs, all while changing clothes and braiding her hair. Obviously, this conclusion made no sense, so I was left wondering if I'd just seen a doppelganger of my best friend. Like most would, I thought that was the end of the encounter. That was until I saw Maddie again later that day. I was packing away my notebook into my book bag when I heard Maddie come up next to me. I shut my locker and turned to face her. Then I noticed her clothes. She was wearing a gray Under Armour sweatshirt, and her hair was in two French braids with no headband. At this point, I'd also like to mention that Maddie didn't come to school with her backpack that day. So if she had somehow changed clothes three times in one day, where did she store them? I could feel the color draining from my face. Maddie must have noticed too, because she asked me what was wrong. 
knowing she was a hardcore skeptic that would laugh at the slightest mention of anything paranormal. I decided it would be best not to tell her, and I gave her the classic excuse of it being nothing. We talked a bit, then parted ways to go home. One thing I'd like to mention is, being pagan, I'm usually pretty good at picking up on the energy surrounding events, places, people, etc. But the vibes during the experience were confusing. It's hard to describe, but it was almost like static. It felt fuzzy and like a dream. I can't tell you exactly how I feel about this encounter because of that. I don't feel particularly frightened by it, but it does make me a bit uneasy. The only other person I've told of this event is my friend Sydney, who's a very open-minded person. I'm not asking anyone to believe me. I just thought he might be interested to hear the story of the time I saw my best friend's multi-gangers. Was this truly a doppelganger? From Unlucky Princess 101. While my parents are pretty wealthy, I've never liked having so much money and even to this day, I don't. My dad used to give me such an insane amount of allowance that I usually just gave most of it away to others or charity. I've had multiple vacations to escape all of it, and during one of those, this happened. I was 22 years old, ready to leave with my suitcases all filled up to go. My mother stood next to me to the open front door, saying, Sweetie, you could have gone to such a better place than this. Just look at it. But I was getting mad. I shouted to her, Not everything revolves around money. Expensive doesn't make it better. To which I grabbed my suitcases and walked out the door. As I loaded my suitcases into my own car, my parents were just standing there in the opening. After I loaded all my stuff into the car and drove off, I didn't look back at them. I arrived at my friend Lisa's place and saw all the rest of my friends that were coming along standing on the porch with their suitcases at the ready. We then arrived at the airport on time, and had a pleasant flight as well. We arrived in England, at Glasgow, and went on to our hotel. We were planning a whole United Kingdom travel, just the four of us. A few days passed, and we'd seen some pretty beautiful places. For a girl who was raised in Oakland, this was a welcome difference. We arrived at the most expensive hotel of our trip, and of course I ended up paying for it. As a matter of fact, I paid to get the most expensive room, which at this place turned out to be a whole floor. Own bar, five bedrooms, own kitchen, and lots of other stuff. It was basically a house on a single floor. It was the hotel we'd spend the most time at, so I imagined that they would like to spend it in a room that was the most comfortable. The first night, after we chose our bedrooms, we ended up playing a few card games in the living room of the suite. We went to sleep pretty late, but I had a hard time falling asleep. I went out of my bedroom at one point and into the living room. But when I did, I heard a voice. It sounded like my own voice. How about a nice glass of orange juice, huh? It came from the kitchen part of the suite. I replied to it. Uh, who are you? You need to leave. I booked this suite. I did get an answer back. Just because you're rich doesn't mean you get to say what I can do. I took a step back out of fear. Then I heard a door open behind me, and I saw my friend Beckett standing in the opening. Can you keep it down in here? He cut himself off from the ending of his sentence, 
looking at me with amazement. Wait, I thought you were in the kitchen. Suddenly, the two of us heard a giggle from the kitchen. We both looked at each other. We ran to the kitchen, but when we arrived, we didn't see anyone. Confused, we decided to head back to bed after about 15 minutes. When we were all awake the next morning, Beckett and I told the others what happened last night, to which Amara said, Well, England is known for its folklore and scary stories, so you might have just both dreamed it up. I was a bit irritated at that remark, but Beckett put his hand on mine, saying, Trust me, we didn't dream this up. They dropped the issue. We went on to have another great day. Eventually, of course, we ended up back at the suite, but this time, we ended up filling the fridge with a ton of drinks and food we bought. Lisa downloaded everything from our cameras that day onto her laptop, and the rest of us were enjoying a few drinks. Then, out of the kitchen, we heard something drop. Beckett decided to go have a look, and when he opened the door, he said, I can't see anyone in the kitchen. Amara then said, Is this one of those haunted hotels of yours? To which I answered, No, not that I know of. Then the fridge door opened with a loud slam. I looked over at Beckett and saw something next to him. It was my own face. However, it had a smile which revealed a set of white, sharp teeth. Beckett took a few steps back into the living room, to which afterward the door slammed shut. Once again, we heard giggles coming from the kitchen. This time when the door was opened again, the lights were on, but not a single soul was seen. We stayed up for as long as we could, but eventually we all fell asleep. Another day went on without a flaw, until we got back to the hotel. We had a full-blown-out dinner, which ended up a little expensive, of course, so I paid for it, just before we headed back to our suite. That night would be the worst of all. I went to take a long, soothing bath. After I dried myself off and came back into the living room, Lisa said to me, Wait, I thought you were in the kitchen. I had a weird expression on my face. As they looked at me, I replied, You all knew I was taking a bath, right? An answer came from my own voice from the other side of the kitchen door. It said, Then she's not the real me, is she? Amara looked amazed and said, How did you... How was your voice coming from there when you're right here? The door opened slightly. We saw my face again, popping out from the opening, saying, Who's ready for some fun? The door shut right away. Laughter could be heard from the other side. Grab your bags, I whispered to my friends, who went to their rooms right away and began to pack. I was alone now with that thing, which slowly opened the kitchen door again, but this time I couldn't see it. As I slowly walked into the kitchen, the kitchen door slammed shut behind me, and I could hear my voice say, I'm you now. I could hear my friends banging on the kitchen door, which clearly did not want to open. The other me jumped on me, to which I fell on the ground and began to fight back. After a moment, I got a lucky hit on something. I got up and ran, slamming into the kitchen door, getting into the living room. My friends had already opened the door to the elevator, which would go down to the lobby right away. We all entered, frantically pressing the button to close the elevator doors. We then all saw that 
thing that looked exactly like me. Rushing to the elevator doors, which now luckily were beginning to close, just in time before that thing could get in. A few slams against the door were heard. Then we were going down into the lobby. I think we all sighed with relief. In the lobby, the staff looked at us. One of them said, You're the ones from the suite, right? We all looked at him, but before we could say a word, the guy explained, Don't worry, you aren't the first ones to run out of there and you probably won't be the last. I got angry, shouting at him. So you knew about this, and still let people into that room? To which my friends comforted me, and calmed me down. We were up the whole night, and only in the morning we went to get our suitcases from that suite. When we got back into the car that would take us to the next hotel, I looked at the window of the suite we had been staying in, and I saw that thing standing in front of the window. Standing there, smiling at me with those sharp white teeth and all-around creepy facial expression. This was the only hotel we stayed at where anything creepy happened, and I was fine with that. The rest of the trip was all without problems, and we still talk about it from time to time. So far, the only creature I can think of that this thing could have been is a doppelganger. With that... We're at the end of this week's episode of Unexplained Encounters. Don't worry, I'll be back soon with more scary stories for you to enjoy. If you don't like to wait, subscribe to Darkness Prevails on YouTube to catch new stories sooner. If you want to hear me read your story, send it to me at darkstories.org. Before I go, help us spread the word and reach new listeners. Just share this podcast with your friends and family. Follow us on Spotify and or review us on iTunes. Thank you. Until next time, everyone, remember, this world is a strange one, so stay safe out there and stay creepy.